Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hey everyone, welcome back to Across the Street. Today we are again joined by the one and only Dr. Chris Hosler to do some updates on COVID and where we stand at the Durham VA and on a national scale. Y'all probably remember from the last few times we've heard from him, Dr. Hosler is the Chief of the Office of Public Health and Epidemiology at the Durham VA, but informally he does like to be known as King COVID. Welcome back, Dr. Hosler. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, how's it going? It feels like the last year has been approximately 40 years long, but uh, we're getting there. Yeah, my infant is turning one in two days. Wow. And it's made me do a lot of reflecting on how different things were this time, yeah. 365 days ago, you know, and and so so let's start there then. Where are we in this process? So much has changed in the last year, both at the VA and also nationally. Where are we? I think we're on the downslope here. We're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. We're still clearly in it, but we're definitely heading towards that way. You're right though. This is, it's remarkable to reflect on how much has changed just in the last year. Just a a week ago was the one year anniversary of our first case here at the Durham VA. It took 12 days for us to get the test result back. Now, you know, we've done 29,000 tests. We have a turnaround time of 0.34 days if you combine all platforms, it's just remarkable to think about, like we've, we've completely re-engineered how we deliver healthcare in pretty much every aspect of healthcare. And I, you know, I don't think we're ever going to go back to the way things were 14 months ago. We'll pare back over the course of the next year or so, but I think some of these changes are here to stay and they're they're good changes to have in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the movement towards increasing our ability to perform telehealth, I think, is something that's great and, and should be a longitudinal change. Yeah, it'll certainly increase access for certain people. Things have changed in and outpatient, and I agree some of them will probably never go back. Do you think we're ever going to see each other's faces again, not on Zoom? <laughs> I think so. Uh, I think we're probably certainly here at the VA where it's not just a what's going on locally, but we're also under President Biden's executive order. Until that's lifted, we won't be seeing each other's faces. I think that probably sometime this summer or early fall, if things continue as they're currently trending, we'll see some unmasking over the course of the next six to eight months. I look forward to that for sure. I have been trying to work with our leadership to see what can we do. As part of it is, you know, what what kind of carrots can we give people to get vaccinated. Now we're over 93% of employees who have been vaccinated. And some of it goes into what what can we actually do? And I'd like to have an opt-in system where people can opt to do something that demonstrates that they're vaccinated, which would give them some additional privileges just to kind of boost that even closer to 100%. But that's a very reasonable approach to take. It's just the implementation and the enforcement of it that's a little bit more difficult. You know, it, it's interesting that you called them carrots because I've, I've wondered how much of the updated CDC guidelines in the last couple months were in part carrots, you know, yep, like they were absolutely. accepting a certain, they were accepting a certain amount of risk, like decreasing the quarantine period from 14 days to 10 in the interest of getting people to be compliant with those 14 days, you know, and hey, grandparents get vaccinated so you can see your grandbabies, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's certainly an aspect of that, but I'll, I'll also say that they're, they're carrots that are well-founded in science. Okay, fair, good. Yeah. <laughs> so since we mentioned how the VA is doing, compared to other VAs in the country, where does the Durham VA stand? Naturally, we're number one. I mean, so the bottom line is that VA as a whole, this has been a huge 
success story, if you can call a pandemic a success, like this, I think the VA has nationally has really shined through this. And I think Durham has done an exceptionally good job as well. I mean, if we just look at vaccination, for instance, we're over 40% of our patient population that's been vaccinated compared to, for instance, North Carolina is about 28% for adults, which I think is the only reasonable comparator there. The U.S. nationally is only at about 28, 29% of adults. So we're 10 to 11% higher than the state or the country at large. The VA nationally is at about 32%. So it's uh, three. 4% higher than the, the nation at large. I think there are a lot of advantages we have. We know who our patients are. We know how to reach them. And we are incentivized to do things like prevention, like vaccination, because the VA is almost like a giant accountable care organization. Like we, we know we own these patients forever. And so what we do now pays dividends in terms of preventing illness, whereas that's not necessarily the model elsewhere. But I think that this has been a huge success story for VA. And I hope that story continues to get told. Yeah, one could argue that this is a reason to do that model in other areas also. And those numbers, I will say, are true as of today. We're recording this on March 24th. So, you know, in 12, 24 hours, all of those numbers will be updated. So just for listeners who are maybe hearing this a week from today. And as far as how well the Durham VA has been doing, I've shared this with Dr. Hostler already. I, I think my favorite days are vaccine blitz days because you seeing the veterans line up at 8 a.m. on a Saturday is just so inspiring. And I think that we have Dr. Hostler and also Dr. Embry to thank for that exceptional effort. So thank you for leading us through that charge. Uh, it's been a, a huge team and frankly, it's taken the entire health system to kind of get this done. So I, I can't take sole credit for that, but I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about where we're going now, treatments and the virus itself. So we have a few new treatments, or I guess some updates on old treatments. So the last time we talked, we discussed remdesivir and dexamethasone in detail. And so now I'm seeing a little bit more use with bamlanivimab and convalescent plasma. So tell us a little bit about those two treatments, Dr. Hostler. How do they work and who do they work on? Both of these treatments are essentially giving people an antibody response, so passively immunizing them in a way. Bamlanivimab is one of the monoclonal antibodies. There are a couple others out there, Regeneron, which was uh, kind of widely known uh, when President Trump got it uh, back in the fall. All of these basically are, are intended to uh, provide somebody with an antibody response so that once they're infected early on in the course of infection, you can hopefully bind some of that virus and reduce the overall immune response, which then would hopefully reduce the severity of illness overall. I think we've also found some additional cases outside of the EUA where it's really helpful to give something like a convalescent plasma or, or one of these monoclonal antibodies. And that would be for people who have an underlying disorder that prevents them from forming an immune response to begin with, something like myeloma or CLL, giving them, basically passively immunizing them can help them clear virus where they may continue to shed. These are the few people who will continue to shed for weeks or months unless you were to be, take a more proactive approach. So in some scenarios with those very small numbers of patients, we've given convalescent plasma and remdesivir, not necessarily to try to change the course of their illness, but really to try to reduce their likelihood of being contagious moving forward. Since we're on the subject of mounting immune response, let's talk about the vaccines a little bit also, because right now we have three vaccines that are available and potentially there's a fourth one that's going to come in the near future. So it seems like the VA has access to all three of them, depending on the site. So in the hospital, we've given Pfizer and we've given Johnson and Johnson, and then the CBOX have Moderna. 
yeah, everyone has different storage requirements. This is treated as a controlled substance at the VA. And so there's a lot of accountability that is required for this and a lot of documentation that's required for each of these vaccines. Are there major significant differences among the vaccines other than the distribution? So we know that Pfizer and Moderna are both two shots, whereas Johnson & Johnson is only one. Most of our listeners probably have been offered the vaccine at this point, and I hope most people who were able to have received it, but I I suspect people are wondering about extended family members and parents now as the vaccine is becoming more and more available. So what, how should we counsel our colleagues and our family members who haven't gotten it yet and are starting to get access? The key is that the vaccine you can get today is the vaccine you should get. I don't actually see any significant clinical differences between these three vaccines. I don't think you can directly compare them. I think a lot is made of Pfizer and Moderna have roughly 95% effectiveness in terms of preventing symptomatic illness, and Johnson & Johnson had 72% in the United States and 66% overall. But they were different trials done at different points in the pandemic. The outcome assessments were at different time points because it's a single dose versus a dual dose vaccine. And so I don't think you can really directly compare them. On the pro side for Johnson & Johnson, 30% of the participants were enrolled from South Africa or Brazil when both the B1 351 variant and P1 variant were predominant in those countries. So you could make an argument that actually this is really good, that it's a really good vaccine because clearly it demonstrates a really good effectiveness in light of aggressive variants. I think the most important aspect here is that all three vaccines from day 28 onward had no hospitalizations or deaths in any of the clinical trials. Now we're going to see some hospitalizations and we may see some deaths as well in fully vaccinated individuals because all three trials, while robust, largely had healthy people of all ages, but people without severe immunocompromising conditions that may prevent them from having a reaction to the vaccine. But overall, it's, you know, If we're looking at this and saying there were no hospitalizations or deaths for any of the vaccines after 28 days from administration, I mean, that's remarkable, right? If this was a pandemic of the common cold, I don't think anyone would care. And that's essentially what we're doing is we're saying all of these are really effective at preventing symptomatic disease. They're exceedingly effective at preventing hospitalization and death, and they seem to be equivalently effective at preventing hospitalization and death. And that's what we care about. So Dr. Hostler, since you mentioned the variants, let's talk about those a little bit. How many to date are there that we need to worry about? And what are the real things that we need to know about these? How do they change the course? So I think the the bottom line is that every time the virus moves from one person to another, it's a little bit different. Every time it replicates, it's a little bit different. Mutations happen naturally all the time. And so if we're talking about total number of variants, I mean, it's probably in the millions in terms of how many variants actually exist. I think the ones that people primarily care about are the B117, which originated out of the United Kingdom, B1351, which originated in South Africa, P1, which originated in Brazil. And then there are a handful out of California and New York that are kind of variants of those primarily B117 that have just a slight modifications from those as well. What we're seeing in the U.S., and we don't have sufficient, we have better sequencing data now, but we don't have sufficient surveillance sequencing to say really what the breadth and depth of these variants is throughout the U.S. It's very limited in terms of uh, what our overall surveillance is, but I think it's relatively safe to say that B117 is becoming more the predominant variant that we're seeing here in the U.S. And th- honestly, of all the variants, that's the one I'd probably pick because 
from an in vitro or in vivo standpoint for vaccinated individuals, there is essentially no difference in terms of neutralizing antibodies that are formed or in terms of clinical transmission that occurs with B117 compared to the other variants. The reason that it's more contagious is that it binds better to the ACE2 receptor in the airways. So it's almost like a stronger magnet, if you think of it that way. And as such, it increases the amount of replication of the virus. And so people who have B117 tend to shed a lot more virus. And it's all a numbers game. So if you're shedding you know, 10 times the amount of viruses, somebody who's infected with wild types strain, that increases the likelihood that you're going to be contagious by tenfold, essentially almost literally is a race against time to get vaccines into arms. I think the really encouraging thing here is that while the U.S. as a whole, over a quarter of people have received a single dose of vaccine, the prioritization schema that most states have used really means that those who are most vulnerable and most likely end up in our hospitals and our ICUs have a disproportionately higher rate of vaccination at this point. And so I think that that alone has saved tens of thousands of lives so far. So one of the differences among the vaccines, Dr. Hostler, is when the immunity actually kicks in, right? It's not immediate. Right. And and it's not complete. And that, you know, I'd I hesitate to say things like you're fully protected at some point. I will always say you have the greatest degree of protection. It's important to remind people that nothing's 100%. So we consider people to be fully vaccinated if it's greater than two weeks after their second dose of Pfizer or Moderna. And then the CDC uses greater than two weeks after the single dose of Johnson & Johnson. Here locally, I'm a little bit more conservative. And so for our own hospital epidemiology purposes, I use 28 days after the single dose of Johnson & Johnson. And that's primarily just because the data for asymptomatic transmission is a little bit better at 28 days than it is at 14 days. It's important to remind people when they're getting vaccinated that just because you got your first dose doesn't mean that you're completely protected and do whatever you want. We have had cases where patients get their first dose and immediately, you know, go dine indoors and go to church and not distance or mask and then they get COVID. So it does take some time to get that immunity. And it, once you have it, it's not 100%. We've also had cases of healthcare workers who were fully vaccinated as of the end of January who have COVID now. And while they're few and far between, that's going to happen. You know, If these trials were 95% effective at preventing symptomatic disease, that means one in 20 people are going to get COVID. And that's pretty much what we've seen out of about a 5% rate of positivity among employees who are fully vaccinated compared to those who are unvaccinated. Yeah, I mean, this is a pandemic and part of it is not getting ourselves sick and part of it is not spreading it to others as well. And we're shooting for herd immunity, right? Yep. And what percentage is herd immunity? Yeah, it's a uh, subject of ongoing debate, probably somewhere in the 60 to 80 percent range. And that would be people who are unable to transmit virus that you know, block that chain of transmission. It's a little hard to tell exactly, especially because, you know, the transmissibility is different by different strains. So it depends on what the predominant strain is that's circulating. And None of these vaccines are 100% in terms of preventing transmission. They're all really good at reducing the likelihood of transmission. If you look at the Israeli data that came out, uh, showed essentially a 90% reduction in terms of even if you were vaccinated and you tested positive, the likelihood you would have a viral load that's high enough to transmit is reduced by about 70 to 90%. The same kind of data came out of a group of healthcare workers in the United Kingdom who'd received the AstraZeneca vaccine. But none of these vaccines produce what we call sterilizing immunity, meaning you cannot transmit it. The only way to do that would really to be have like a nasal mist vaccine, which at this point doesn't exist. But I think that it's 
it's really encouraging that uh, if we get to somewhere around 70, 80% of people who are vaccinated, you're unlikely to have large scale outbreaks in the community. Herd immunity does not mean there are no more cases and, and we won't have to deal with COVID anymore. It's here to stay. We're gonna continue to have cases for years or decades to come. It's just a matter of, will these cases lead to subsequent transmission events? And the hope is that we will be able to prevent widespread community transmission, which has been going on for over a year now. And those who have already been infected, although in the short term may contribute to herd immunity, they should still get vaccinated, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the, the primary reason for that is that a vaccination gives you a predictably high degree of an immune response. When you get infected, it's completely variable. It tends to be that people who are asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic have a very modest immune response. And so they may develop some immunity, but the duration of that immunity is totally unknown. Those who have severe disease who end up in the ICUs tend to have a really robust immune response. And that's one of the reasons that they end up in our ICUs. And as such, you know, we can speculate that their immunity probably is going to be much longer lasting than those who had mild disease. Vaccine is essentially giving you even greater degrees of immunity than if you were to have extremely severe critical illness, but without all the hassle of having to be on a ventilator. That is inconvenient, right? Really inconvenient. It can jams people up all the time. Yeah. So for the most part, the things that we're talking about feel hopeful to me. They feel like we're talking about the beginning of the end. We're talking about looking forward. We're talking about potentially getting back to some semblance of normalcy. What timeline do you see for this, Dr. Hosler? Or is it too early to say? It kind of depends on how we handle the next couple of months. And I know that I've been saying that. I feel like I've, I've actually said those exact things every month for the last year. Like <laughs> where we are in a couple of months depends on what we do right now. And that's, that's still the <laughs> case right now. If we continue with vaccination, if we can start decreasing hesitancy in those groups where we still have significant degrees of vaccine hesitancy, then I think that, you know, we, we could have some degree of normalcy by the summer. And frankly, you know, personally, I've already booked a trip out to Hawaii to see my folks who I haven't seen in a couple of years now. But, you know, we scheduled a trip out there at the end of June, early July. My kids won't be fully vaccinated by that point, but certainly my wife and I will, and my parents have already been vaccinated. And so I feel reasonably comfortable resuming some degree of travel here within the States. We are not planning in any international travel for the foreseeable future for leisure. I think some of that is just based on the logistics of trying to manage testing outside of the country in order to return to the country and whatnot. But I think that if, if we can continue on this pace, then we'll have a pretty good summer. And assuming that there are no you know total escape variants or anything like that, which I don't anticipate, I think every variant we've seen, even if you have slightly reduced neutralizing antibodies from the vaccine, you still have a really good effect and, and prevent the, the biggest issues. And so I'm hopeful that we'll see a good summer. But you know we, we still have widespread vaccine hesitancy among certain demographic groups. And unless we can really change the narrative with those groups, we may not get where we need to be. Well, we'll keep pushing the vaccine and encouraging people and educating them as often as possible. But there may be a light at the end of this tunnel. Yeah. That's what I'm going to take away from this. I will remain the eternal optimist. We're headed to a good place and I think we'll get there. It's, just, it's going to take a lot more hard work. But I think we can do it. Yep. And thank you for your thoughts and your knowledge and expertise on this subject, Dr. Hostler. And similar to last time, we may touch base again in a few months just to see where things are, if you're okay with that. I'll be here. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And as always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or Veterans Health Administration.